Ignite your curiosity with Austin next. We're watching Austin transform from a thriving ecosystem into a global superstar. With our host, Jason Scharf, we aspire to better comprehend the true nature of innovation. Together, we will uncover what makes a successful ecosystem and navigate the technologies shaping our future. Now let's dive into what's next. What gets measured gets managed, goes the famous Peter Drucker quote. If we want to help influence Austin's transformation to the next innovation powerhouse, we have to not just go on gut instinct, but look at the data. We're going to take another deep dive into Startup Genome's annual ecosystem report. Check out the top line trends, see what the metrics say about Austin today, and how we stack up for the future. Joining us to peek under the hood is Forrest Wright, Startup Genome's research assessment lead. Forrest manages global assessment projects, advising clients on strengths and opportunities for developing thriving, sustainable startup ecosystems. Prior to joining Startup Genome, he worked as data manager for the Global Entrepreneurship Monitor, where he was responsible for data science projects and content generation. Forrest lives in Philadelphia and holds a master's degree in information science from Drexel University. Forrest, welcome to the Austin X podcast. Thanks for having me. So let's start real big. Can you talk us through the Startup Genome annual report? You know, what's the overarching mission and methodology of the report? Yeah, so I don't want to speak for you, but you might be uh, getting this report every year and you kind of furiously scroll through it, see where Austin is ranked. I don't blame anyone for doing that. That's pretty accurate, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Skip over the executive summary and all the things we take so long to, to make nice. Do you have cameras in here? Do you, do you see exactly how I do this? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So what people really know us for um, in this report are the rankings. That gets a lot of attention, of course. But really from a broader perspective, it's a pretty substantial report. And we're looking at the activity of, of more than 290 startup ecosystems globally in that given year. So in that report, we're looking at sector trends, which areas are gaining traction, which ones are declining. And then, of course, then we have our, our annual ecosystem rankings, which, again, is, is how most people know us and know us know the report. So we put this together by compiling a huge data set of all the startups in those 290 plus startup ecosystems, also the, the venture capital firms and funders active in those ecosystems, and then a bunch of other data points, which we'll probably be talking about a little later on, that serve as proxies for startup activity. So in total, at the end of the day, the database we're looking at is like three and a half million uh, companies deduplicated and, and manually reviewed to create our annual data set. And then from that, we start, um, you know, splicing, developing metrics that really cover the funding, exit, value, and experience of those companies and those ecosystems every year. So then um, kind of getting a little more specific. Some of the metrics that we, we generate on each ecosystem, which eventually feed into our ecosystem rankings, which we talked about, they cover five, or sorry, six areas, performance, funding, market reach, connectedness, talent and experience, and knowledge. And when it comes to using these, these metrics, these six metrics that I just mentioned to do the rankings, it's really important to keep in mind that how an ecosystem does on each metric results in a raw score. These scores are indexed with the best performing ecosystems receiving uh, a 10 as their index score. And then all other ecosystems are indexed relative to those top performers. And this is really important, I think, because um, 
offshore ecosystems will, you know, they'll get an increase in their funding levels. You know, they'll, they'll see all this activity and they'll say, hey, it was better than last year. Um, but then they'll see in our rankings and some of our metric scores that they might actually drop in a given year, you know, this year compared to last year. And the reason why this happens is because we're indexing um, those scores again relative to the top performing ecosystems. So sometimes you will see a drop in certain scores. It doesn't necessarily mean that the ecosystem is is declining or you know retreating, but it, it does mean that you know relative to some of their peer ecosystems, ecosystems they're they're underperforming. So when you look at the time period that this report looks at is really 2022, right? Exactly, exactly. The reason I, I ask from that perspective, looking at 2022, it's interesting when you talk about things, Look, you know, when we're talking about looking at a curve, basically, and that 21 and 22 were this, and especially talking about funding, right, were this kind of very high level, everybody kind of going up at very significant rates that, you're right, like, you know, whether it's Austin or any, almost any other city, right? We were at all time highs. Why didn't we move up? But then you, as you just said, like everybody moved up. So it would almost be very interesting to see if we could jump ahead to 2023 because we're seeing this kind of, you know, even looking ahead at current numbers, the, we're seeing more of a, a, a split that's starting to occur. Not every, things are starting to fall back to earth for some places, but then not for others, Right. Absolutely. And, I, and that's why I think this is such an interesting report. And I'm actually really interested in, in how Austin does in particular. And I say that because as you identified, 2020 and 2021, those are just banner years for VC funding. I mean, the, the amount that was going out through VC funds were, you know, were just astronomical. And so, you know, places like Austin, you know, they were, they were doubling their, their ecosystem value size over that period. But it's still relative to many other ecosystems. You know, they're actually falling a little bit behind. And so you see that a bit in Austin's ranking from 2019 um, to 2022, where there was a bit of a bit of a fall over that period. Um, and I think a lot of it is due to this that relative overperformance of, of a certain set of ecosystems. So before we I say dive into Austin specifically. Can we go into, as you said, those kind of six categories? I think some are, I think, you know, performance and funding are, I'm hoping, a little bit more self-explanatory, but some of these other uh, areas, how do you define them and how do you measure them? Yeah, um, so we're looking at something like connectedness. That's that's a bit of a a vague and, and maybe a subjective concept, but what we're we're trying to measure there is how active funders and other stakeholders in the ecosystem are sharing knowledge and contributing to the success of the ecosystem overall. You know, it's it's tough to, if we really, you know, had unlimited resources and time and, and foot soldiers, we could go into each of these ecosystems and, you know, survey every single accelerator and talk to every founder and, and you know, see what they're doing. But, you know, in, in the absence of that scenario, we have to find some some proxies for connectedness. So what we've looked at for that metric is is one meetups, meetup groups within that ecosystem that are dedicated to entrepreneur and startup founder uh, groups and seeing how active they are relative to to other ecosystems. And one thing we've added this year as well, as the data has gotten a bit better on this in some of the databases, is the number of accelerators and incubators in each ecosystem. 
that kind of gets a little bit at the, you know, kind of that informal um, connectedness that goes on within the ecosystem. Um, you know, those founders who are participating and those accelerators and incubators are going to be talking to each other, meeting people, getting, you know, making connections. And that's one thing that we've, we've added is another way. We're, you know, we're always trying to improve some of these metrics as we go. The, the, the total proportion of how each metrics goes into the ranking that stays consistent every year. But in terms of the factors that, that feed into the metric, you know, those, that's something that we, that we kind of revise as data becomes available and shifts in ecosystem trends. You know, we're trying to respond to the shifts. So I have two questions actually about connectedness. That was one of the ones that I think, as you said, it's a little more of a squishy one and a little more as you kind of think about it, because I think, you know, knowledge is one that I've also seen, like it's patents and research and H index. That's a little more straightforward. Like what's the production of, of knowledge is being produced. How over the, especially the last couple of years, do you think about one, when you talk about meetups, well, how do you bring in remote and digital connectedness into it? So that's kind of one question. And the second question is, how do we think about things like on a, on a per capita, right? How do we think about that, okay, you know, New York and LA are physically bigger or Berlin or the, you know, these larger cities are physically bigger. So then are they being over-indexed? Because yes, of course, they're going to have a lot more meetups. But structurally, just the density and of the number of meetups per population or something to that effect. So how does that take it in and be able to show the vibrancy of, a, of an ecosystem? Yeah, so I'll get to the second part of your question first. So the, I should have mentioned that when we look at um, meetups and the number of groups and events that, that occur on meetup.com, we divide that by the, the metro population. So that's one way to kind of take into account size and, and just sort of like over-indexing of, of certain ecosystems. And then on the um, first point, it's, it's, it's a very good one. And it's one that we're, we're trying to wrap our brains over, to be honest. I mean, one thing is it's kind of baked into the accelerator and incubator factor within connectedness because a lot of incubators and accelerators are having digital cohorts, you know, or they have kind of hybrid cohorts. So that's one way it's kind of getting factored in. But, you know, to be honest, there's not a great way to integrate that element of connectedness into the ecosystem. And it's something that we're going to be continuing to, to look at. So big picture, 2022 kind of global startups and ecosystems, what's changed? What are kind of the major headlines and anything that surprised you this year? Absolutely. So perhaps not surprisingly, Probably the, the biggest headline is just that um, startup funding overall is, is down. We measured it at about 35% compared to last year. So I think a little bit interestingly, though, is, is even though the deal numbers were, and of course, total amount were down year on year, the amount per startup that received funding was a little bit larger this year um, compared to last year. So I think there's actually, when I see that, it, lends a little bit of credence to that narrative. I think we saw in a lot of business press that venture firms were being a bit more selective in the startups they were funding and maybe paying like a little bit of a premium for that, you know, those better fundamentals, you know, the sure, sure bets. So I think there is a little bit to that in actuality um, that even though the deal amount was lower overall, I think there was a bit of a premium on those startups that were 
funding ready and had a, had a um, good, solid business plan. Money is still out there, but you just got to prove your worth and prove that you're a good startup rather than the kind of the lines when people are saying, and I, I felt it a bit when I hear people saying, there's no money out there. There's no funding out there. I'm like, I, whether it be the numbers itself or even seeing, hearing people funding, it's like, there's, there seems to be something out there. It's more of a, you got to find it and you got to prove yourself, I think is more of what, what it is. Yeah, absolutely. And, and certainly there's money if you're in AI right now, which is another trend we saw um, in the data as well, not just anecdotally in the, in the press, but AI was the uh, subsector that we measured with the um, highest count of, of VC deals, making up a 28% of the global share of, of all deals in 2022. And it also actually, interestingly, saw the highest rate of um, exits. So I think what, what that tells me is that um, a lot of AI firms um, maybe weren't on the most solid footing and were kind of cashing out while, while the money was there. Um, so it's, it's actually, it's, it's both simultaneously. There are a number of great and promising AI firms that are getting, um, you know, still getting substantial deals from VC, but, but some are, are cashing out <laughs> as well. And, you know, hard to blame them. Yeah, obviously, the funding environment coming down a bit, AIs in the headlines, anything kind of that you guys found that's coming was a little bit under the radar? Oh, well, I guess in terms of like um, something that surprised us and maybe wasn't necessarily on the um, global radar in terms of looking at ecosystems was the, uh, the jump for Singapore. I'm not sure if you saw that in the report, but Singapore jumped from number 18 last year to number eight this year. Honestly, it's just part of it is that is that wave that that huge boost to venture capital funding that's kind of occurred globally. They just saw a, a massive increase in, in their large scale exits. So we measured that as exits of over fifty million, um, and they actually had four exits valued over a billion dollars in twenty twenty two. So it really bumped um, Singapore. They now have um, eighteen. Unicorns as of the, the year end 2022, including um, this one firm, Coda Payments, got a $690 million Series C round in April 2022. So that's going to be, you know, that seems like it's ready for a boom there um, with that firm. Unicorns always make a big difference, whether they're newly created or exiting. I want to dig down into Austin for a couple of minutes and, and get the the highlights, if you will, and then talk about a couple of things that are Austin's strengths that may not show up in, in what you guys do. But give me the top line as far as Austin goes. We're number 25. We stayed there and we continue to grow. Yeah. You know, I, I think actually holding firm at, at 25 this year was, and I'm not just saying this because I'm on your podcast um, talking about Austin, but I actually think that's a positive sign um, just because of that huge um, boost in, in VC money that was going to all sorts of ecosystems, um, especially, you know, funders trying to find that next frontier ecosystem. And I think in that environment, um, you know, a place like Austin, that's in a more established market, it's kind of a, a fairly mature ecosystem. I thought it, it might get pushed back a little bit. So I think holding firm at, at 25 is actually good news. And I think actually bodes well for stronger future um, we'll talk about in a minute. But, you know, kind of going into some specifics um, on Austin, 
So the number of unicorns we measured um, increased from eight in 2021 to 12 in 2022. And Everly Health being like the top valued unicorn currently from our database at about three and a half billion dollars by the year, uh, end of year 2022. On the downside, unfortunately, it, there was a decline in, in large scale exits. Those are exits valued over $50 million. There was actually a 30% decline from last year, um, even with, with a very large exit in, in big commerce. So even with that, there was just, um, there weren't that many exits in 2022 in, in Austin. So, you know, in terms of how that impacts our, um, our rankings and how you score on certain metrics, you know, with, with fewer large exits, um, it, that just means that there's going to be fewer newly minted millionaire founders and, and former employees who are looking to invest and bestow their knowledge on the, that next generation of, of Austin startups. That's why we, we weight those large exits so highly. Um, and so a, a decline for Austin last year meant that it, it took a little bit of a hit on metrics such as, as uh, market reach, which is something we could, could talk about. So we've talked about some of the numbers. Give me the two or three weaknesses that you see in the Austin Metro. Yeah, well, I think, as I was saying before, the number of, of large-scale exits is, um, or sorry, the decline of, of large-scale exits is a bit concerning. You know, we, we like to look at those because it seems to be a fairly strong indicator of, of a healthy ecosystem, wherein these startups are, are you know, getting into the Austin pipeline. They're raising funds throughout. They're getting, um, you know, they're, they're committed to building their companies to the point where they could have an exit, either in the form of an acquisition or an IPO, you know, at that high value, rather than a, a firm that would, you know, cut and run if they just had a good idea and they, they had the opportunity. So that's why we, we value those exits so highly. So I have an interesting question for you, though. How do you look at something like Austin, where over the last few years, one of the bigger changes that I've observed is the CDE round. So you see the parallel decline in exits is being done by the fact that the companies are scaling and getting larger. So there's a bit of a, now it's a time delay. Like you're probably, instead of seeing smaller M&A, you know, I'm, I'm making up numbers, instead of seeing the smaller $100 million M&A deals, and you'll see that in the volume side, you'll probably see, you know, two or three years later, more billion dollar IPOs when the IPO market opens up. So from a perspective of, I get it from a pure, you know, volume number on a given year, you'll see that decline. But from looking at a health of the ecosystem, it'd be, I would, it looks something different, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that's actually kind of gets at one of the positives and, and one of the strengths that I'm currently seeing in Austin. One is that potential for you know, those longer tail exits that we might be seeing down the line, preferably in, in a, resulting in an IPO. That would be great. But you know, if it's a large acquisition, that would also be you know have a, a, a big impact on the ecosystem. Uh, but one other thing that we did see in Austin is there was pretty substantial increase in early stage deals. Um, so that we, we measured that by seed round plus Series A deals. And those actually increased over the time span about 30%, which is in line with places like Boston and, and New York City. So I think you have two concurrent streams 
And maybe this year we just because of, of timing, um, Austin might have skated in at a, at a place where it was sort of, you know, there were a lot of promising early stage firms and then some later stage firms that are kind of building and building. And I think that that bodes well for Austin's future, even if it, it kind of stayed pat this year. I want to pull on that string regarding the early stage companies, because one of the things that's happened in Austin, especially over the last couple of years, and, and Jason and I have talked about this quite a bit, is we've seen headquarters of large companies move here. And HP and Oracle, those companies like, you know, big universities like UT here tend to be, I don't want to misuse the term incubator, but they tend to generate lots of early stage ideas and the talent that takes those early stage ideas and bring them out. How does Startup Genome try to, or, or do you not even try to, integrate that kind of idea into what's happening in an ecosystem? Uh, we actually do in our market reach metric. We just this year introduced, in terms, in terms of a weighting, it's fairly low and it, and it might increase as we see perhaps um, it might result in more impact than we're currently measuring now. We started integrating, and, and there's pretty good data on this, secondary headquarters being located in the ecosystem. And one thing is, you know, it just something I'm, I'm considering now, and, and I'm not sure exactly how I'll measure it. Um, something I, I need to consider for a while longer is I think there might be a little bit of a double-edged sword when some of those large tech firms come to the, the region, because of course they can be pulling talent away um, from, from startups. And you might, and I think it's not necessarily that, you know, they might be pulling someone directly out of founding a startup, but I think some of those critical infrastructure employees that, you know, the software developers, business managers, they might be enticed and they might not be as committed to the ecosystem. So while they do bring that kind of criticalness. The war for talent becomes much more difficult when... Exactly. Well, yeah, and it's got to be really hard because not only do you have the war for talent amongst the large companies and the small companies, but we've seen just a huge increase in the hybrid work style. I sat down with a group of C-level execs, 20-some-odd companies here in Austin. I think every single one of them was handling this differently. There was no commonality. And, and I think, and I think this is reflected in, in what you guys are seeing, that those items are absolutely taking time to work their way through the system before we find whatever's going to be the new normal. Yeah, and, and as you were saying, in terms of how that plays out in the war for talent, of course, you can, you're not just going to get lured away to Dallas or Chicago or wherever. You might, get, you might be able to stay in Austin and work remotely for one of these big companies. So that's, that's putting a pressure on, on all ecosystems. And, you know, and talent is just, you know, even as the supposed um, surplus of talent now because of, of, of layoffs, I mean, a lot of big tech companies are, are still larger than they were before the pandemic. So in terms of absolute terms and absolute size, you know, there's still going to be a lot of pressure on, on talent and wages across all the, you know, all the U.S. ecosystems. Yeah, the, the number that I heard, and this is national, not just Austin, was like Amazon may have laid off 50 or 60,000 people this year 
but they're like 700,000 people larger than they were two years ago. It's like, okay. Yeah, that, that second part is not often mentioned. Put that in context. Mm-hmm. Well, put on the talent side, there's a, there's a really interesting statement you made, Forrest, from the perspective of how do you, and I don't know if you can even measure this, but how do you think about an ecosystem if that person in Austin is poached from a company in Austin to work for a company outside of Austin, but then they're still in Austin. So then they have probably then a stronger possibility of being lured back to an Austin company in the ecosystem. So they're almost on the bubble and part of that talent. And I said, I have no idea how you would measure this or how you think about this, but for those ecosystems that are in this remote environment, those that are dynamic, when I think about, and I've had like, you know, anecdotal conversations and people have said it kind of an, an app, if I had, you know, an apples to apples job where it's like the exact same thing where I'm working remotely for a company outside of uh, the, the ecosystem and I can work remotely or hybrid something that's in the, in the metro, quote unquote, all things being equal, of course, someone's going to pick the thing that's in the metro with the option to go in the inside, right? And so there becomes that also that interesting dynamic as well. Yeah, no, it's. I mean, it's a great point, and to be honest, I can't. Can, I can't think of how we would actually handle that that kind of use case. And before, it might be a fringe case, but it's obviously becoming more prominent now. I'll just say that what we really try to strive for is using measures that will, will be consistent across all our ecosystems and, um, and comparable. So, I mean, one of the things we look at when we're looking at um. Yeah, it's almost like this. This, and it probably Nick Bloom's work would probably be the someone to look at, at it. But it's almost like this talent slack level, like how much slack is in it to be able to be pulled in quickly into the ecosystem. If suddenly you're like, "Hey, I've got," we had this discussion a little bit with talent uh, and workforce because one of the issues is you have talent demand, especially in the startup environment, is a step function. If somebody gets a fifty million dollar funding round tomorrow well okay they need they didn't have demand for uh, talent yesterday and they have demand demand for talent tomorrow right and so they may not have then it's like i gotta pull people gotta pull people but if suddenly there is all these people who are kind of more on the edge and there's that slack that i don't have to pull them from companies that are here so it might be almost an interesting way to look at it yeah and one of the ways we, we do get at this in a way and it's, it is a proxy again is we look at um salaries for software developers that are posted on, on Glassdoor. It's not, it's not a perfect corollary, but, you know, as salaries, you know, as there's a, as a talent crunch in the ecosystem, you would expect those salaries to increase to kind of lower, lower those developers. Now it gets a little bit sketchy now that there's so much remote work because, you know, there's people who could be based anywhere um, competing for this job. So it might, might bring the wages down a bit. These are things we're, we're trying to be cognizant of and trying to find ways that we can measure this. And I think, you know, one of the challenges for us is that, you know, we're looking globally and we want to be consistent and comparable across all those ecosystems. So if a data source exists in Austin, you know, we want it to also, you know, exist in, in Shanghai or, you know, in Australia, in Africa. We need these things where we can make directly comparable metrics. So that's, that's how we have to. Yeah, there's a twofold challenge in that. So when I look at us, though, compared to some of the other, you know, just looking at the the ranking, right? We talk about we're 25th. And 
I want to ask more almost on the, I'm going to be a little more on the gut and the non-data, right, for a second, because if I look at the global ranking list and gut-wise, look, I'll be a little bit surprised on who was ahead of us, like Amsterdam being ahead of us, Sydney being ahead of us was a little bit surprising. Like, look, London, Tel Aviv, Seoul, that doesn't surprise me. I actually was surprised that Stockholm was as low as it was, you know, compared to some of these. And so as I kind of think about this, and if you're to ask, you know, if you, if you're to do it from a survey perspective and a perception, uh, top 10, probably, you know, not a lot of disagreement. I think most people would probably put the same kind of thing. So how do you almost put in, or how do you guys think about perception? Because in the end, perception actually matters a lot too, right? And in, in how people perceive these ecosystems that Am I going to go here? Am I going to drive in? Because people being founders are looking at. So how, how do you want to think about that? Yeah, that's a great point. And it's, it's something that we've done a lot of research on. And there are some reports available on our website where we look at connectedness in terms of we've done work, you know, very hands-on deep dives into almost 100 ecosystems individually now. Um, and we put out surveys in those ecosystems. We get founders to respond if they know other founders or other people who can help them in these top ecosystems. And the reason why we asked them that is because when you have connections, we found that when you have connections to those top ecosystems, your ecosystem, your local ecosystem tends to you know, accelerate the more, the more connections you have to those ecosystems. So that's one way we've kind of gotten at the perception question when we're able to do deep dives in our consulting work. When it comes to the annual report, I have kind of two thoughts on that perception question. First is, you know, if we were able to ask like a panel of experts, we'd probably get to maybe 30 ecosystems and then they wouldn't really know the, the other ones. We, we ideally want to be talking about, you know, as many ecosystems as possible to give them a spotlight to see what's going on in some of these um, far reaches that don't get a lot of press very often in the startup literature, that's one constraint to kind of looking at perception as a subjective measure. Um, and the other point I'll make is, is, you know, sometimes perception is, I think, revealed in the money. And, and to kind of say, use that term, follow the money. You know, these, these venture capital firms and, and, and investors, they, for the most part, are, are scrutinizing where they want to put their money. So this is kind of a way for us to kind of use that is like a lagging indicator of, okay, where's the momentum? You know, these people are, are meeting with founders across the world. They're, they're going to conferences. They're talking. They're seeing, okay, what's the next frontier? You know, where's the best deal for, for me? And so one of the things we do is, is when we're looking at funding data, we do look at a 30-month lag time. And that's in part for logistical reasons because some places aren't very good about reporting their data on time. But but the other part is that we're trying to capture a little bit of that momentum kind of leading up into that current year because momentum doesn't start on January 1st, you know, it goes back leading up to it. That's one of the things where like kind of perception might be baked into that funding. We're kind of chasing it. It's one of the reasons I, and this is something that I've, I've talked about really recently because it really kind of hit me hard in terms of that perception is because when you look at especially over the last three years. And, you know, and Michael got it a little bit when talking about like Tesla and Oracle and some of the companies, you know, 
that are moving here and more about how they're connecting to innovation. But when you look at the, from the startup perspective and the innovation perspective, and you look at, you know, 8VC moving here, you know, Briar Capital moving here, Bill Gurley just announcing he's moving, you know, he moved here, Bedrock Capital moving here, iFly, but like having serious venture capitalists moving here and being integrated in. And you're right, it, it doesn't necessarily show up in the data today, right? They're, they're obviously starting to, you know, I can start pointing to the, all those people that I just said, you know, they moved here at X point and now they're starting to invest, you know, in that. But there does seem to be a point when I would, you know, if you were to back to your point on, you know, and I'm being Austin centric here and looking at more than the, at the top 30, not really, you know, going below, but to your point, that tells me that probably they don't perceive Austin as number 25. I'm pretty sure that they would perceive it as a much higher ranking than that, or at least as the near term or midterm as much higher than 25, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, part of this is we don't, I mean, this gets a little, maybe a little bit delicate. And it's one thing that we're, you know, going to be looking at going forward. But I think the reason why a lot of people wouldn't consider Austin number 25 is, I mean, the reality is it's based in America. And, you know, there's, there's a big premium for, for getting a foothold in, you know, this growing economy that a lot of companies, you know, including international ones are, are trying to get a piece of currently. So I think, from that perspective, you know, it's probably a bit under indexed in terms of the potential going forward based on how America is, is accelerating, at least it appears to be in, in the in the medium term. And um, secondarily, you know, we don't necessarily discriminate against like the composition of funding that comes in. Venture funding tends to be tracked a bit more in you know in deals on you know the, the major funding databases but you know government support you know is a big part of a lot of other ecosystems globally that's it's not so much in the mix in the US i mean it's it's starting to come a bit from the federal government you know lately but again for example like in israel last year they unveiled this policy to kind of get more institutional investors involved like pension funds investing in the startup scene. And so they were offering really, really generous um, tax incentives and write-offs to kind of get that buy-in from those institutional investors. I think you actually see that in our ranking. Tel Aviv jumped up a couple spots this year, and it's now number five, I believe, you know, certainly punching above its weight in, in terms of, of population. And you know, those are kind of some of the things that you don't see so much in the US kind of boosting those overall funding numbers. So I guess it's a long-winded way of saying, you know, these are venture investors, private investors that are coming here and, and you know, they're not necessarily competing with, with, with federal and government funds. So for them, it presents more of an opportunity. And I think they would probably see that as more of an opportunity compared to a place where they'd be, you know, competing with, with government funds for getting those deals. Yeah. And that brings us to another point. We've talked about how Austin over the last several years has has moved to to really be a thriving entrepreneurial and innovation ecosystem. But of course, never being satisfied, we want to move up into that superstar status, whether it's top six US or top dozen worldwide. What do you think are the two or three things that are holding Austin back? Yeah, I wish I could give a really, really robust and, and 
in-depth answer on this. I think it would take, you know, a, a survey like the kind we do with our consulting work, talking to founders directly, talking to investors, talking to the university. I think you kind of need that holistic perspective. But I think if I'm just looking from a strictly kind of top view data driven perspective, again, uh, I'll kind of harp on that, that large exit figure, which, which we've discussed, you know, might be a temporary kind of blip in terms of how much of an impact it has on Austin this year. I, I think that that exit number is a big one. And to be honest, I, I think it's really about kind of standing firm and playing on, on Austin's strengths. You know, as I mentioned kind of about the top, Austin did well, in my opinion, by, by standing firm at, at 25. And I think actually we're going to be seeing in the next two or three years, a lot of ecosystems are going to start to decline as the, the BC boom kind of starts to, uh, you know, be seen in the data. And Austin, I think, has a lot of advantages. The fact that it's already a fairly established ecosystem space in the U.S. Um, it has a very strong presence in, in AI and cybersecurity, which I think are going to be very great centers to, to be, you know, well represented in the next couple of years. So I think, you know, a mix of, of kind of seeing those, those exits kind of go through the, the standard deal to exit pipeline, which we expect to see pretty soon. And then, you know, playing on the strengths, encouraging that the AI sector and cybersecurity sector will be, you know, I think that'll, if Austin continues on its, on its trajectory, which has been improving as other ecosystems are, are starting to decline, then I think, you know, it stands to reason it'll, it'll start to climb the rankings in the next couple of years. Well, I'd rather climb the rankings by improvement rather than seeing others decline, but we'll take both. Forrest, thank you so much. Startup Genome has been, uh, this is your second time on the podcast, and we appreciate the company announcing their, their studies with us. We always end with, with our singular question, what's next for Austin? Well, I'm not just saying this because I'm talking to you guys, but uh, I honestly think uh, the future is really bright. And I, I kind of alluded to it in my last question. To talk a little bit specifically, we did our AI and uh, big data um, subsector rankings last year, and, and Austin ranked 13th globally. I mean, that's before kind of the, the chat GPT explosion and interest in this subject. And why I think it actually builds really well for, for Austin is we have these stalwart AI companies already there, like um, Spark Cognition and Mythic and, and Tether. I think they've all raised, you know, north of $100 million and some of them, you know, much more than that. And they've all been around for, you know, a decade plus um, in addition to some other AI companies. And so I think this is a lot of built-in institutional knowledge that's going to be a real advantage for Austin compared to a lot of companies that are starting now to kind of, you know, jump on the bandwagon. Austin's going to have a real advantage there. So I think it's close well. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Say hello to the folks at Startup Genome, and we look forward next year to having you guys back on. Thank you. Have a great day. So what's next, Austin? We're glad you've joined us on this journey. Please subscribe at your favorite podcast catcher, leave us a review, and let your colleagues know about us. This will help us grow the podcast and continue bringing you unique interviews and insights. Thanks again for listening, and see you soon.